With support from the Climate Kick Alumni Association, welcome to The Elephant. I'm Kevin Kaners. Today, nearly 150 world leaders are assembling here in Paris for the start of the 21st Conference of the Parties, the UN Climate Summit. And whatever may come out of the process over the course of the next two weeks, it's hard to overstate the crucial importance of this year's climate conference. There's never been a more do or die, this is it or we are scuppered. There's never been a treaty process with more at stake than COP21. That's Elizabeth May, environmentalist and the leader of the Green Party of Canada. As an activist, lawyer and politician, she can look back on four decades of being a tireless and outspoken member of the environmental movement. And she's joining us today to talk about what is at stake with this climate summit in Paris, and why despite the years of failure around these UN talks, they still matter. Elizabeth May has seen these UN climate conferences inside and out. When the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the one that started it all, was signed at the 1992 Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, she had already been part of the preparatory committee work that had gone into bringing the conference about. Since then, she's attended most, if not all, of the 20 COPs. This year, Elizabeth May is a member of the Canadian government's delegation, going as a member of the opposition party she represents. We reached her by Skype a couple of weeks ago to talk to her about what the process is like and what the obstacles to an agreement are. Here's our conversation. Okay, I'm ready when you are. Okay, great. Well, Elizabeth May, welcome to The Elephant. Thank you. Now, the reason why we wanted to talk to you today is because, of course, we're coming up to uh, what we're told is a very big deal. We're having the UN meeting on climate change in Paris, COP21, starting at the end of this month. Now, uh, since this is the 21st meeting, one would assume that uh, the world has made a lot of progress on, on the climate question. How have we done up to this point? Um, how have the first 20 COPs done in meeting the climate problem? Well, I, I hate to uh, go for the predictable, but we have had good cops and bad cops. And recently, <laughs> we've had nothing but bad cops. The Conference of the Parties, just to explain, give some context to listeners, there's a UN Framework Convention on Climate Change that was negotiated. It was signed in June 92. Canada was one of the first countries to ratify. We're still negotiating within the terms we agreed to. And this is global. This is every country in the world agreed to these terms in 1992. It was within that, at the third conference of the parties, that more specifics were negotiated. And it won't surprise you when I, when listeners, when I tell you that the third conference of the parties was in Kyoto, Japan. So, okay, that's the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, we were doing pretty well under the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, and then the U.S. decided to come out against it. It was a huge struggle. Canada stayed uh, in a progressive position supporting Kyoto and, in fact, putting together a plan, although it wasn't a, a really good plan until 2005, so many years later. And then, of course, our government changed, so our plan was canceled. Meanwhile, uh, the rest of the world was realizing the, the Kyoto Protocol was always just supposed to be a first step. It was never supposed to be the whole answer. And although most countries in Kyoto signed and ratified actually met their commitments, 
Uh, the U.S. staying outside of it with its huge economy didn't help. Developing countries had never been asked to take on targets in this first step process under Kyoto. So it was necessary to have a treaty that brought everybody inside. And the worst COP of all time was COP 15, which took place in Copenhagen, which was the deadline for making sure all countries were involved in a treaty that really avoided disastrous levels. Like a self-imposed deadline that everyone had said by Copenhagen, we want the entire world to be in an agreement? Yes. And actually, the last really good COP was where we set that deadline. The last really good conference of the parties was in Montreal in November 2005. And that was a very tough negotiation because due to the lag time in getting enough countries to ratify Kyoto, Kyoto was only coming into force at the very same time that previously set deadlines required that we be prepared to negotiate the next treaty. So they did a good job in Montreal, set in place the deadline that no later than 2009 at COP15, we needed a new treaty. That was Copenhagen, and it was a spectacular failure and horrible to witness. It was derailed through a combination of uh, the Danish government itself, um, the U.S. playing politics with it, and the catastrophe of Copenhagen was so intense that there were deep questions raised as to whether the U.N. system was capable of putting together anything that would work. Uh, that really is why we have limped from 2009 to 2015 with a series of conferences that step by step began to put this process back on track. When I say it was derailed, uh, that's not a bad metaphor. And getting things back to where anyone can believe it's possible to reduce emissions through an international treaty has taken us to this point. So there's never been a more do or die, this is it or we are scuppered. There's never been a treaty process with more at stake than COP21. Climate negotiations are a slow-moving beast. As we mentioned, it's now been more than 20 years since the original UN Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro was held in 1992. And even the meager progress that's been made so far has been the result of hard bargaining and what sounds like no shortage of sweat and tears as well. Elizabeth May has been part of these negotiations since the very beginning, and she admits that it's an uphill battle at the best of times. But she also points out that, although the UN process might be difficult, we've actually seen it work well before. This has been fraught, not because we can't get an international treaty to deal with pollution. Uh, we did that successfully on the ozone layer. If we hadn't succeeded in September of 1987 in the Montreal Protocol negotiations, we'd be talking about the loss of the ozone layer at the same time we're talking about climate change. International agreements can work, and that was proven by the success of the Montreal Protocol to protect the ozone layer. So what's the difference in this case? Why have there been so many meetings with uh, emissions only having gone up over the past 20 years? What's the major difference? There's two. One is the level of, I can't find a word other than criminality for the behavior of the fossil fuel lobby globally to decide to lie about the science, to put mil hundreds of millions of dollars into campaigns to confuse a public that was ready to believe they had to do something about the climate crisis and to spend a fortune, like, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars in climate denial propaganda. The other piece of this, which made a big difference between the Montreal Protocol and the Kyoto Protocol, was the rise of corporate rule in globalization 
And with the creation of the World Trade Organization, the use of trade sanctions as an enforcement mechanism for global environmental treaties was basically put in a bad light. It wasn't ruled against WTO rules, but in 1987 in Montreal, the Montreal Protocol to protect the ozone layer said if any of the parties to this agreement, any of the countries that sign on, then decide to cheat and either produce or sell chlorofluorocarbons or other ozone depleters against the terms of this treaty, they'll be subject to trade sanctions from all the other parties. By just 10 years later, 1997 in Kyoto, with the creation of the WTO, the use of enforcement mechanisms through trade sanctions was not possible. So you mean there was no mechanism for countries to punish a bad actor any longer? Exactly. And there are no enforcement mechanisms in the Kyoto Protocol. But I, I also, I often hear the comparison when talking about the Montreal Protocol and talking about how, well, the world came together to stop these CFCs that were damaging the, the ozone layer. The big difference is that our entire economy isn't geared towards CFCs, where with fossil fuels, it's legitimately how we, we run our lives. It's how we run our cities. It's how we run our transportation systems. It's really how we built the modern world. So there's a lot more inertia to it. What do you think about that point? Well, it's, it's a fair point, but it doesn't explain why things have been so difficult. If corporations took responsibility for their actions, like, you know, if you go back to ozone, just briefly, when, when the science came out that the ozone layer was thinning, the first response from DuPont, and DuPont has now reformed itself, but pre-Montreal Protocol DuPont, they were throwing doubt on the science. They said, this isn't true. We're not seeing this. The ozone layer isn't thinning. And then they fell to their next defense. Well, the ozone layer, okay, we admit it. The ozone layer is thinning, but it's not due to our product. And then their last position was, well, it's okay, so it is due to our product, but it will be too expensive to the world economy to deal with this. Now, fortunately, DuPont uh, saw that governments were seriously negotiating a legally binding protocol, at which point they put a lot more research into alternatives. And by the time we were signing on the dotted line in Montreal in September 1987, DuPont had become a constructive actor and actually was there all smiles talking about the transition away from these chemicals. If the industry response on fossil fuels had been different, if the big carbon, big oil multinationals had said, oh my gosh, Scientists have just told us that our product threatens our own children's future. We're going to get on board with the research we've had all this time, by the way. We've always been keeping up to date with solar photovoltaics and wind, and we've got technologies that we can roll out right away or at least give us a lead time of 10 years and we'll transition off fossil fuels. If they'd taken that approach, it was totally technologically possible, it was economically profitable and possible, but it would have eaten into their corporate bottom line. So I, again, it is true that our economy was running on fossil fuels. It's equally true that in the late 1880s and 18, you know, 1870, when the UK decided to ban slavery, its economy was running on slavery. That was the source of energy for much of the world's economy. We can't just say, oh, well, this was harder. Yes, it's harder, but it's particularly harder when you're dealing with venal behavior from the world's multinational fossil fuel industries. As for myself, as an outsider to these things, I've never been to one of the, the cops. I've only ever followed it from the outside, um, watching the news. 
And I think it's kind of confusing because we're told, especially like uh, in Copenhagen, everyone was told, well, this is the end. Like we need something to come out of this or else mm -hmm. it's over. But then the whole process is, is more or less opaque. We're told people are meeting, but it's behind closed doors. And how it, the whole thing functions is, is rather opaque. What is it actually like being there on the ground in, in the room? How do these meetings actually take place? Well, it's great that you asked the question, Kevin, because, you know, I get the question on uh, social media quite often. If you guys all care about the environment so much, why do you all fly to these capitals? And believe me, the carbon footprint of a cop isn't small, uh, even if you're doing carbon offsets. The reality is you can't negotiate these kinds of things long distance. The, the, the physicality of it is something that people would have a hard time believing. And they're like, the last cop was, uh, and of course, the, the heat was on. The pressure is intense to fix the mistakes of the past, to have a treaty that brings everybody in inside. And in Lima, Peru at COP20, knowing that this was the last conference before the deadline, there's so much pressure. And literally in one of the rooms where they were negotiating a key piece of the agreement, which is the, the Durban platform for action, it, basically all the key action for what the next treaty is going to look like is in that negotiation. And around a table uh, with about with room for about 60 people around the table. Then they decided they couldn't get, the chair couldn't negotiate it. They decided to have a huddle. Believe it or not, most of the key countries, so now you're down to a huddle of about 20 nations, which means that 20 people in a corner of the room using only English, no translators, are trying to negotiate. They were in a huddle for over an hour and one of the shorter delegates told me afterwards, a, a, a woman from Latin America, how tough it was because she's shorter. She couldn't be heard. She's basically, a, a, not to be too graphic about it, but armpit level of negotiators <laughs> who've been in the same room negotiating for quite a long time. These are very difficult negotiations. And when you think about it, how are you going to get 196 countries? You basically got the whole world. You're trying to get the, every government from the whole world to agree. So there are negotiating blocks. The developing countries tend to negotiate as a group. Uh, the, the industrialized countries break down into several different groups. But no, on, on many pieces of text, each country needs to get its oar in. Copenhagen, by the way, was sabotaged by uh, Canada wasn't helpful. But the, uh, the U.S. really played a very uh, significant role in undermining Copenhagen because President Obama couldn't come with a decent target to reduce emissions, thought that having, at that point, his Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, gave a speech, and they thought that throwing a lot of money on the table would reduce the pressure on industrialized countries from the poorer nations of the world to do something to reduce their own emissions. Because let's, there's no doubt about it, the industrialized world's emissions have created the lion's share of a problem that threatens all. And as a matter of, of economic reality, threatens poorer countries more because their infrastructure is weaker and their ability to respond to a major disaster is weaker. So Hillary Clinton came to Copenhagen and said, OK, we're going to have $100 billion in funds that's going to be available to all countries, $100 billion a year by 2020. And we're going to put a down payment on it right now. And then when Barack Obama showed up, instead of saying oh, negotiating in the room where everybody's negotiating in a multilateral process, and it is relatively transparent, it is broadcast, you can watch it in the room, reporters can watch all of it. But the problem was that Barack Obama decided that uh, in order to get anything through the U.S. Congress, he needed to come back with some kind of win. So he pulled a bunch of countries into kind of a 
a hotel room with nations of his choosing and governments of his choosing battering out something that they then called the Copenhagen Accord. It lacked all legitimacy from the actual negotiating process. But the negotiating process had been wrong-footed from the beginning because of ham-handled negotiations by the government of Denmark, where at the time the prime minister of Denmark wasn't speaking to his environment minister, and they were at loggerheads. I mean, this, this really driving a negotiation to a successful conclusion depends a lot on the host government, the host country, and their capability to work well. It depends on having at least some countries in the room and some negotiating blocks being willing to show real leadership, which we need to have before COP21. The reality is that the cumulative total of all current promises for carbon reduction that have been put on the table within the last 12 months, collectively, if they were achieved, fall so far short of the goal of ensuring we avoid a two degrees Celsius global temperature increase. The two degrees figure, by the way, was put on the table in Copenhagen. Since then, it has been accepted in all the negotiations that we should ideally try to keep world temperature from going above 1.5 degrees Celsius. The current collective total could be as bad as 3.7 degrees Celsius global average temperature increase if all countries keep to the targets as currently tabled. So can you explain that? So like every or virtually every country in the world has now submitted what they are hoping to achieve or what their own reduction target that they're bringing to the table is to Paris, right? That's correct. And it's because of how badly Copenhagen went. Uh, in Copenhagen, uh, countries signed on to this, um, as I mentioned, the, the hotel room deal that Barack Obama nailed out. And then other countries that weren't in the room, like Canada, signed on to it later. It basically said, my country will reduce by X amount by X year our emissions, like fill in the blanks later. It took some time after Copenhagen for scientists to do the sums and say, oh gosh, you're nowhere near what you've also pledged. The front page of the paper says, we'll avoid two degrees Celsius global average temperature increase. Page two of the Copenhagen Accord said, okay, fill in the blanks, we'll tell you later. Add them all up and no, you're nowhere near achieving your goal. This time around, starting in uh, the COP that took place the year before last in Warsaw, is okay, we don't want to go through that again. We're, we're going to insist that countries table their commitments well ahead of Paris so they can be added up. So these now are called, in UN lingo, intended nationally determined contributions. So yes, they're the targets, but they are each individual to each country. There are 150 countries that have tabled these, and when you add them all up, there is an emissions gap that is enormous. So it would be ideal if there was some leadership, if one of the nations or one of the groups of nations, whether the European Union, which has been doing the most in reducing emissions successfully as a group, although Scandinavia has been doing really well as well, but if one of the countries around the world, Canada could do it, the U.S. could do it, say, look, we have to do more. It's clear on these numbers that we're not avoiding 2 degrees Celsius. We could be going as high as 3.7 degrees Celsius. All we are doing at this point is slowing down the rate of emissions growth, and that isn't good enough. So if, if we saw some more commitments, some hard numbers, we're going to do this by this year, we're committed. If one or two countries start doing that, Often in these negotiations, it unlocks some momentum to do better and pledge more. Certainly developing countries, even rapidly emerging uh, giant economies like China, 
have no reason to believe the industrialized world when we say we're going to reduce our emissions because they haven't seen us do it yet. But issues of trust and commitment are not the only hurdle on the way to a global climate solution. Agreement would be hard enough if it were only one topic being negotiated. But as Elizabeth May points out, it's not just the issue of reducing emissions. There are going to be a lot of moving elements up in the air at Paris over the next two weeks. These negotiations, they're not on just one topic. In every negotiation, there are at least 10 to 12 to 20 issues being negotiated at the same time. You mean aside from carbon reductions? Absolutely. Adaptation to those levels of climate change that we can no longer avoid. Finance, how do we help developing countries pay for their adaptation? Issues like there's the question of the action most of the treaty is going to deal with what we do after 2020. There's a whole another negotiation on making sure we do more before 2020. Uh, discussions of a new topic that's come on the table since Lima, Peru, of what's called loss and damage, where, and it was because hurricane, uh, typhoon, haifu had just happened in the Philippines. And the developing world is saying, look, we're being damaged right now. It's not just adapting to climate change. The industrialized world that's responsible for this pollution should be paying for the losses that we are incurring. So that's a very controversial topic, but being negotiated uh, as part of the COP21 process is loss and damages. So if, if you look at, the, you know, beginning to describe a global climate negotiation as a three-ring circus underestimates the complexity of what you're really dealing with. Because quite often, you know, if a country were to, country A, say it's been intransigent on the financing issue, and country B in a different room isn't going to move to more reductions in carbon unless financing improves. And country C, so if, if country A in, in over in in plenary one decides to up its game <laughs> on financing, you might find that over in plenary B, country B changes its mind and says, "Oh, okay, well now we're seeing, so there's linkages." So there's a million moving pieces. Oh, exactly. It's a very difficult process. It's almost uh, infinitely complex. And what it really needs in the end, it's also really about the people in the room, the personalities of different government leaders, their willingness to show some moral courage, to use some of their political capital on something that may not gain them re-election benefits, but will save their kids. These are not easy issues. Do you think that the the momentum has has shifted on on that factory? Because I mean, now we've had Stephen Harper uh, recently kicked out in Canada, who is one of the worst carbon villains, and uh, Tony Abbott within his own party was kicked out, who was also one of the worst carbon villains. And and suddenly Obama seems to be leading, in at least some ways, uh, finally rejecting the Keystone Pipeline. Do you think that the momentum has changed, and that leaders can actually? do something that is seen as as bold on the environment and not be punished for it? Well, the answer to your question is, can political leadership make a difference? Can the change between the back of Tony Abbott and the back of Stephen Harper and a reinvigorated, shall we say, White House, can that make a difference? Absolutely. But it doesn't make a difference by itself. Where things stand right now, there is insufficient political courage. There is insufficient political will going into COP21. Any number of countries together or individual prime ministers or presidents personally can up the gang. Uh, our strongest global leadership, as I've mentioned, has been in the past the European Union. 
the fact that Angela Merkel, who's been very historically very good on these issues, as a matter of fact, the, the only time I ever met her was when she was the environment minister to Germany and was in Canada for one of the discussions about these issues back in, um, I think it was 93 or 94, uh, when Angela Merkel was uh, in Canada as part of an environment minister's discussion. But right now, she's hobbled by the ongoing problems of Europe as a union. She's, her leadership is challenged more by the refugee problem from Syria. Again, a lot of issues are interlinked. Barack Obama, everyone knows the U.S. can't get anything through Congress. The limit of his sphere of action is what he can do by executive order out of the White House. That's why there isn't a legally binding component that's new coming out of this treaty negotiation in Paris, because the world has had to accept that the U.S. can be taken at its word as an executive order and interpreted as part of what they already signed and ratified back in 92. I mean, it was George Bush who signed and ratified the Framework Convention on Climate Change, which means the U.S. has an existing legal treaty within it, which it must live up to its commitments. But it would be better for the rest of the world if we had legally binding wording for everyone but the U.S. Again, another level of complexity. But the more that Barack Obama can do to increase targets, increase financing, and the same for our new Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, increase the targets, increase the financing. So increase the help to, to d- the developing world to both mitigate and to adapt to the changing world. That's exactly right. And how does that look? Are, are we looking positive on that front? So that there's like $100 billion a year that that's the target by 2020 to yeah. of aid and, and support for the developing world. Are we close to that? It is being mobilized. We're not there yet. We've seen recent commitments from the World Bank and the IMF, uh, increased commitments from the EU, from the United States. But we're not there yet. I mean, this was, after all, not a request from developing countries. This was, uh, to put it bluntly, a bribe put on the table by the U.S. in 2009. And uh, the bona fides, you know, is the industrialized world, are the rich countries negotiating in good faith when there's a commitment to the Kyoto Protocol, for instance, to reduce our emissions? Well, as I said, the European Union met its Kyoto targets, so did Scandinavia, but Canada clearly didn't. Japan got relatively close and then reneged on trying to reach its targets. So it's really, there's a matter of trust and goodwill built in. So the human dynamic of this is underestimated quite often. And the ability of governments to say to large corporate actors that are not just domestically, you know, in the old days, you'd have a, a, an important industrial power that influences the health of your country's economy. But they're domestic. Now they're multinational. Many of the multinationals that have to accept that it's game over for new investments in fossil fuels and start transitioning to clean energy, many of these multinationals are much bigger than the governments that are negotiating. You mean they're more powerful? They're more powerful. Their their profit line is bigger than many countries' GDP. So their influence is large. And I think that uh, naming corporate villains is something we don't do very much anymore because we're all so civilized. But I think it's important that where the corporations have gotten away for years and saying, oh, well, it's all the consumer's fault. These people don't want to, you know, they're not going to drive less. Don't ask them to. 
oh no, thank you very much, uh, but uh, the internal combustion engine isn't a necessary part of our economy. We can transition to hybrids or better yet electric vehicles and we can, we can transition our source of electricity to solar panels on our own roofs, to run our own cars. These are things that are not just possible but already happening in, in many places around the world. So we, we're at a different place uh, technologically because the, although all of these technologies were known when we've been negotiating previous uh, treaties, they were not yet affordable. Right. So it's changed. It's changed uh, the tone that renewables are actually starting to be very competitive. Exactly. It's a real sea change when you when you can look at a uh, solar installation and know that it will produce electricity reliably, consistently, and cheaper than coal. This is the kind of big news. Bill, Bill McKibben, we had him on the show uh, a few months ago, and something he argued was that what, what happens at these UN conferences is basically if there's an agreement or not, or how how far leaders go, is almost entirely uh, a function of social movements and how strong or weak they happen to be. Uh, would you agree with that? It's basically how far the people and uh, the populations of different countries on the world are, are pushing their leaders. I absolutely agree, and I, I'm Bill McKibben is a hero of mine, and I'm I'm privileged to call him a friend. I I just love him so much as somebody who speaks to conscience and he writes so well. So I'm in awe of Bill in many ways. But one of the things that's very clear is that after the failure of Copenhagen, which was so depressing, I mean, basically, and another piece I haven't mentioned is that Denmark essentially established martial law over downtown Copenhagen. Demonstrations and people were being, you know, arrested before they could do anything, right? I was a, a accredited delegate to attend Copenhagen with the Global Green Movement. And it was such a bad and bitter experience, including that they locked people out in the bitter winter cold, waiting in line for as long as I was in line once for six hours to get in, even though I had my credentials. I developed a really serious uh, respiratory illness. I was uh, to go to the hospital for a while. I mean, Copenhagen was a, a horrible experience. What happened after that to the movement was the movement that had built up to Copenhagen was so dispirited and so disillusioned that essentially a lot of global mobilization for a climate treaty said, okay, this isn't working. We're going to go local. Uh, we're just going to move. We're going to retrench. We're going to do climate action personally and locally. So the movement to stay on top of what happened next at COP 16 and 17 and 18 took a while to re-engage. Re and it was, uh, again, Bill McGibbon's organization, 350.org, plus many around the world, Greenpeace and World Wildlife Fund, seized on something quite brilliant that um, Ban Ki-moon, UN Secretary General, announced in Warsaw at uh, the, the conference of the parties that took place there in 2013. And he said, look, I'm, we need some political momentum going into the Lima COP20, we've got to do something. So I, he, Ban Ki-moon announced, and, and I remember him saying it in Warsaw, we're going to be, I will be calling on uh, leaders to come to the to New York, to the United Nations in September 2014. And that's when we got the 400,000 person mark. Exactly. 400,000 people on the streets of New York, plus tens of thousands more in, in capitals around the world. Uh, more, you know, people gathered around the world. That was the rebirth of global climate activism, grassroots global social movements that said, no more, you've got to reduce emissions and you've got to leave most of the fossil fuels that we, that are, that we know of. Most reserves of fossil fuels must remain in the ground. 
which is something even Obama uh, admitted the other day when he rejected uh, Keystone. Well, it's at, um, the, uh, the current governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, who used to be governor of the Bank of Canada, refers to unburnable carbon. That, there, that most of the reserves of fossil fuels must stay in the ground. This is a big shift. So I totally agree with Bill McGibbon. We need people in the streets, nonviolent. And I, the kind of demonstrations I love on climate activism are, of course, the ones that are supporting the negotiations, not protesting the negotiations like in Seattle against the, the WTO, but in favor of success at the highest possible level of what's going on in a room to which in this conference more than ever, the access for non-government organizations is incredibly restrictive. I'm so glad that with a new government in Canada, uh, as, as the leader of the Green Party of Canada and as an elected member of parliament, uh, I'll be on the government of Canada delegation. Our previous government under Stephen Harper did not allow opposition members of parliament on the government delegation, which was frankly bizarre. You you represented Papua New Guinea and Afghanistan at one point, right? Just yes, so yeah, just yeah, just because well, they needed help. Well, Papua New Guinea didn't really need help. Let's say they they have a they have a very strong negotiating team. A lot of in developing countries. Uh, such as uh, Papua New Guinea, do bring foreign experts on, and their head of delegation has been a very impressive academic from New York for many years. But Afghanistan had a, a professor from Australia, and they were three delegates who were actually from Afghanistan, and they were desperate for help because of all these different meetings in different rooms. I became their note taker, but that meant I could get in all the rooms, which was frankly very helpful. Uh, these negotiations in Paris are going to be hugely restrictive. So there'll be a lot of people gathering in civil society meetings. They matter. Demonstrations, as long as they're peaceful and appropriate, because actually a violent demonstration reduces uh, success. It alienates people from the goal that we're all in this together. But civil society globally should be mobilizing more than ever before. Anybody listening to this, whatever country you're in, if you're in a democracy, get hold of your uh, your state or provincial leadership, get hold of your federal government in any way you can, through petitions, through media campaigns, through marches, to demand that whatever they've put on the table as of now, they will improve, that they will show a greater commitment financially, if they're a wealthy country, a greater commitment to reducing emissions faster. Uh, this is key if we're going to be able to uh, succeed at COP21. Otherwise, COP21 is going to be a, a milestone as we limp along and hope for better in future conferences. But the, it's a huge opportunity missed if we don't uh, mobilize at the grassroots as much as possible to push for, for deeper cuts and stronger climate action and more support for developing countries. Well, what still gives you faith in the, the process, I, I'd be wondering, after having gone to these things for, for 20 years, more than 20 years, why shouldn't we all just focus on our own national governments and making changes at home? Because no, no one country has the capacity to avoid levels of climate crisis that become uh, self-perpetuating. I mean, the, the risk of runaway global warming is real. We don't know where the tipping points are in the atmosphere. I remember seeing an article right after Hurricane Katrina that I thought where one climate scientist put it very well. And he said, we may need to get used to the idea that climate change is not so much a dial as a switch. You know, we could see uh, the loss of the West Ant Western Antarctic ice sheet 
And we don't know when that might happen. Well, it sounds like we already have gone past that line. Well, we don't know for sure. But if we lose the Western Antarctic ice sheet, the effect on sea level rise for the northern hemisphere isn't a meter or two. It's 15 meters. I mean, so there's there's really horrific consequences that you don't really want to talk about too much because a despair is a very uh, immobilizing emotion. We must not feel despair. We must engage with those parts of our being that are most willing to have faith, to work really hard, and to have hope. I, I, I love the line from uh, David Orr at Oberlin, who wrote in, in one of his books that um, hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. <laughs> this is no time for giving up hope, you know? If, if you're on a lifeboat and you're taking on water, for God's sake, keep bailing <laughs> and hope there's land in view, right? So what gives me faith? What gives me hope? We're all in the same lifeboat. We ought to keep bailing and we've got to pull together. And I'm grateful, so grateful for the experience that I had in helping to negotiate the Montreal Protocol to protect the ozone layer to know that when you get it right, things move rather quickly and a disaster can be averted. So I guess just looking forward to Paris then, I mean, um, for, well, first of all, given that in this past, it seems like the major sticking point, as you alluded to, was the lack of trust between countries. It didn't seem like any of the countries could trust each other, especially between developing uh, countries and rich nations, for developing countries that the rich nations were actually acting in good faith. Do you think that has started to change? Is there starting to be a bit more trust? There does seem to be. I mean, the fact that Barack Obama, that the U.S. and I shouldn't always make it personal, the, president, the U.S. and China are now agreeing that emissions must be reduced and that they're prepared. You know, the U.S.-China accord is significant, but neither the U.S. nor China are doing enough under that accord. And clearly, as a, as a very wealthy country, the U.S. has more potential to do more. Saying no to the Keystone Pipeline really does matter because it would have increased oil sands productions, which would have increased greenhouse gases. We, we need in Canada to have a climate plan here as well. So there are there is reason for more optimism. And certainly, uh, as an environmentalist, and I'm sure you wouldn't be surprised to know that I, I never thought that I'd be looking at the World Bank the International Monetary Fund, the International Energy Agency, and saying, well, they're showing leadership. But right now they are. And what should those of us watching Paris and keeping our eye on it, what should we be looking for? Um, are we going to to get some grand agreement? What, how, I guess, how tempered should our hopes be? And, and what are the main things to be looking for as the news unfolds later in the coming weeks? As I said, please do everything you can to put pressure on your own governments to increase whatever it is they're currently offering. People who have developed a, a sense of literacy around this issue, who know what's going on, letters to the editor of mainstream papers leading up to the summit really matter to demonstrate to governments that you're watching. Yes, there is going to be, barring disaster, there will be a document. Right now it's a draft of about 50 pages long. It's insufficient at the moment to avoid 2 degrees Celsius global average temperature increase. We need much deeper emissions and we need them to start happening faster. Uh, but watch for a treaty. It will probably, it's the, the conference is scheduled to run from November 30th to December 11th, which is a Friday. I don't anticipate that there will be a deal until the wee hours of Saturday or maybe Sunday. These difficult negotiations 
in this climate process tend to run long, and the last 36 hours are often literally sleepless. Key negotiators often don't sleep, or those like me who are trying to help don't sleep for days. It's a very, as I said, it's a strange process of intense physicality, but what the wind in the sails of these negotiations is public pressure. Well, it will be uh, an interesting and important conference for the world to be watching. Elizabeth May, thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you for getting this information out there. I appreciate it. And that was my conversation with Elizabeth May, environmentalist, leader of the Canadian Green Party, and who's attending Paris on the Canadian COP21 delegation this year. And that's all for The Elephant this time. The Elephant is actually in Paris right now. Um, We just arrived on Saturday. And we're going to be doing many interviews with people over the course of the next two weeks, meeting activists as well as official people taking part in the summit. So keep tuned for some of the interviews that we'll have coming up. The Elephant is put together by myself, Kevin Kaners, along with Matthias Gutz and Christina Peters. You can find us online. We're at elephantpodcast.org, where we have all of our episodes. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is at Elephant Podcast. We're given support by the CKAA, a European society of entrepreneurs, scientists, students, professionals, and policy officers working to create a climate resilient society. Find out more at ckaa.eu. I'm Kevin Kaners. See you next time.